Chats with Larry is a podcast of phone call conversations of me with my best buddy, Larry Keene. Larry is a retired minister and sociology professor, and he has the biggest heart of anyone I know. I'm Rabbi Brian, an ordained rabbi who heads religion outside the box, where I create great spiritual faith, religious content for intelligent digital age seekers like you. People of all religious affiliations of none and everyone in between. I decided surreptitiously to record my chats with Larry with the hope that he would later give permission so that you might enjoy listening in. As you can deduce, Larry gave his blessing. Enjoy as we talk about philosophy, religion, sociology, and life. With love, I'm Rabbi Brian. We started a bit talking about SpaceX. We edited all that out in post-production. But you'll hear at the beginning, we start talking about rockets and how even your vacuum cleaner evolved. Let, let me tell you the nine parts that are important here. One, a conversation about vacuum cleaners that leads to meditation. Two, the space between sleep and wake. That sleep is a spectrum. Three, giving in to allow other spirits to control slash influence you. Four, the freedom and permission to be myself. Five, sleep is the burden of self-consciousness. Ooh, I want to hear that part. Six, solitary confinement can create delusion. Seven, my octopus teacher. Eight, getting our stimulus alone or in a group. And nine, getting some of your own medicine isn't always negative. It's the iterations. You know, yeah. the, the rockets in 1968, those were first generation rockets. Yeah. And the, the amount of thinking that's gone into even my vacuum cleaner, like the vacuum yeah. cleaners we have now, they evolved. Yep. By the way, I had one of the very first vacuum cleaners ever made. Of course you did. <laughs> I bought it in an antique store. It looks like a, it looks, make a circle with your hands about six inches. And it was a cylinder about six inches in diameter. And it had, what do you call it, at the bottom that would go across the carpet, whatever that piece the is. The broom piece? The mustache? The piece, yeah. The broom piece, yeah. And then in the center, it had a wooden rod stained and polished that you pumped up and down and it built up pressure in the cylinder. And it, in effect, what you did is you went, you pulled it up, that sucked it, you pulled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were doing the sucking yourself. Yeah, so the, the housewife must have had uh, forearms about eight inches across, you know. Yeah, and uh, and I had it at the church, uh, at the Little Brown Church, and someone stole. Mm. Yeah, it was 1911. Wow, that's when it was made. That was the very first one. It was just a sucker. That was a sucker. Yeah, is. So here's one for you, Larry Keen. Let me see if I can derail you into philosophy here. Oh dear. Vacuum cleaner comes around. And it's sold with the premise, you'll have more time. It will take mm -hmm. so much of the workout, you'll have more time. Labor-saving devices. That's yeah, talk to me about labor-saving devices. Because <laughs> yeah. it like, seems to me like it's a, it's a bait and switch. Yeah, it, you know, if you want to apply it to computers, look how much time you spend figuring things out. Yeah, so where's the problem in this? So, right? At this point, we should all be evolved enough. We should have enough iterations of ourselves that we 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 ought to be enjoying our time more. But but we're not. Like what, like what do we fill the, the time with that we've saved? 
we we don't say I'm thinking that maybe we have an unconscious drive not to have time off because it's too it it, it we don't maybe we we're afraid of the joy maybe we're afraid of the pain I don't know what we're afraid of but we're definitely afraid of something isn't it interesting that they have a phrase for that they call it solitary confinement like wait 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 that was a prison term last I knew that's a, that's a prison term. But it's the idea that if you're locked into solitariness, it's a negative thing. If you're confined there. Oh. We wouldn't want to be there. It's against our nature to be confined into a state of solitariness. Wait, is that why people don't want to meditate, even though they all say they want to meditate? And then I'm I like, know, I wonder if that's behind some of that. Because here's the thing, Larry, everyone says to me, I hear like I would meditate if it were, you know, at the beginner level, I'd, I'd meditate if it if were chill, if it were. And then I, I come I'm doing the, you know, I'm doing it Mondays at five minutes, Tuesdays at seven minutes. And yeah. I'm inviting people to come and they don't yeah. show up. Yeah. And I think, what is that? Didn't you say? Yeah. But you're saying that they're afraid of that five minutes of solitary confinement is really scary. You know, for a lot of people being alone with themselves, alone with their thoughts, number one, maybe they don't have any thoughts. All right, so then be bored. Who cares? Yeah, that's right. I I grew up in an orphanage and foster home, and so mine was kind of my solitariness was forced on me, but I learned to really enjoy it. I just come to life in a solitary moment. And I think you do, too. Well, I have a I'm both and because I grew up, I don't know, third floor off of 72nd Street. Um, the hustle and bustle was was mother's milk. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. And being alone is the opposite of Manhattan. Yeah. Right. Uh, but then, you know what happened? I, I went scuba diving and you, the fish are there, but it's it's sensory deprivation. Like you can't hear anything. And your body's moving differently. It's totally bizarre. And it was it was mindfulness for me. Oh my so goodness. first time I was ever really by myself. Ah, yes, I can see that. I don't think I've ever thought of that before. It was the first time I was by myself. And I was like, yes, please give me some more of this. I never really I cared about scuba diving. I wonder if uh, you had an air source with a half a dozen people, you know, like a tank on your back. Yeah. And you were you were down about 40 feet, fish going all over, and you can't speak to one another. Yeah. I wonder if if you would have that feeling with others around you or whether you could only have that feeling. Oh, no, I can have that with it's got to be. I could do that with a group of people. Mm -hmm. It's a different it's it's ask, you know, it's somebody just sent me an email that about this intimate moment he had with a friend who they had grown up Catholic together. And the friend was now Lutheran who does all the vestments and everything. And he said, his friend invited him to do an old school mass in Latin, just the two of them in the Lutheran Mm. church. And he said, it was the most intimate experience, Mm. right? It was just two people in silence, except for the prescribed words. Yeah. Then they both knew. The moves. Yeah, it, it was it was. Uh, so I think of the same thing. I could think of being underwater with a group of people. 
and finding some holiness. But why is it so hard to do not underwater? Well, you do it so much easier than than I would. I I think I love solid. Yeah, you do. But I there's something about meditation with me. I know what it is. With me, if I'm in a solitary place, my mind becomes engaged, really engaged. Yeah, 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 totally. But in meditation, it's like zazen. You're just sitting and your mind is being purged. Oh, no. I just sit. My thoughts go 100 miles an hour, but Mm -hmm. it's fine with me. We have a very different experience of that, I think. Maybe it would be more attractive to me if I was given permission to let my mind wander as opposed to my perhaps misspoken understanding of meditation as being where the mind ceases. No, 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 no. When I meditate with a group of kids, they all say that they, oh, I wasn't thinking about anything. And I'm like, y'all lie because you're thinking about a lot. You're doing metacognition at a rate and clip that you're not used to. You're thinking about what you're thinking about and you're going, you're going three levels, four levels deep into it. Yeah. Oh my God. I do my laundry list sometimes while I'm meditating. I write articles sometimes while I'm meditating, but, Mm. but it's just watching where my mind goes. And if it goes somewhere else, it goes somewhere else. Well, let me ask you this question. I don't think I've consciously asked it of others. Do you have a sleep period where if you go to bed at 10, you start, coming out of sleep at about four and then there's an hour or so there that you're kind of in between yeah yeah you're not not awake but your mind is working and all of a sudden it's it's dredging up all kinds of subconscious stuff Mm. and i i find myself in that window a lot and that my most creative ideas come from uh, it's so freudian yeah uh, from the releasing of whatever sub subconscious materials were bubbling up from deep within myself. And and I've thought to myself, Brian, I've got to remember this in the morning and I seldom do remember it. Well, I can give you some hint. I've learned a few tricks so that I can remember things afterwards, but I, I, I can tell you that, but I also wanted to talk about, there's this misconception that sleep is binary. Either you're asleep or you're awake. Mm -hmm. And it leads a lot of people to thinking when they didn't get a good night's sleep, that they only really slept for three hours, that the rest of the time while they're laying in bed is also restorative. It's just not sleep all the way over on that end of the spectrum. It's a. You ought to write an article about that. I might. I might. It's a a good. I think that's a, a very positive thing to say. I think that's another way of defining what sleep is yeah that it's not binary that it's gradient and and on the other and going towards it when i meditate there's that liminal part before i knock off where it's like a really deep well and it's like a flowing river of ideas that 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 part is great but sometimes the top end that's at the beginning end you say well it's between sleep and awake it's between absolutely out and completely on at night or when I meditate or in the morning, there's a space in between the two of them. And so when I meditate, I will sometimes allow myself to fall asleep and not remember anything of it just so I can get a better sense of where that boundary, that defining in between sleep and 
and remembered awakeness are? Mm-hmm. I find myself because I have a tablet by the bed. Yeah. Getting up and writing it down right away. I did that the other day. I that works. Pages, and then I, and it was really good in the morning. And I was glad I did it. And I was afraid that if I hadn't done it, just like every other time, I, I wouldn't be able to recover any of it. Yeah. 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 So by what you're saying is that when I was having that and I thought I was I was some I was coming out of my deep sleep. sleep yeah. unconscious. I call it an unconscious. Yeah, an unconscious sleep, right? And you were you were still by the by the edges of it, coming into consciousness, and you get to take right. some with you. And I was raking the, so I was sweeping the floor. Yeah, and all that stuff, you know, I picked up, and uh, I didn't want to lose it. So, oh nuts! I don't want to wake up. I was having such a good time. Yeah, but uh, but I wake up and I put it down. I think we should write an article about that and and how oh, that really fits into meditation yeah. and how the misconceptions of meditation this certainly was the one i had yeah was that you just zone out and you're just unconscious so help me help me write that article well so. i surely will but i think it would be helpful because it already helped me and just talking to you about it that i need to redefine what sleep is yeah, that sleep is a spectrum. Yeah. What meditation. So what you're saying is that there is a similarity between what we call meditation and the meditative state. And what's the word? Somnambulism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good word. Yeah. Um, and I know it has to do with e-waves and a lot of that other more technical stuff. But uh, that babies are rich with e-waves and adults my age don't have any left which means what's another way of saying we don't have the complete depth of sleep our sleep is more so oh, interesting right of yeah, course that, yeah i know as that you, much about sleep yeah. as i get older i have much more twilight time that's right that's a good way as to i say. keep getting older yeah yeah and uh, but what's good is i don't mind it I don't mind it. I know some people who just don't like, they, they like being knocked out. Yeah. Or they're not as comfortable being. Is that a function of drugs as well? Why some people who take drugs is just to. To knock out. Knock, yeah. knock them out and deaden themselves from what? Concern, anxiety, pain. Hey, dude, if I told you I could give you something that would get rid of concern, anxiety, and pain, you'd be a fool not to listen. Yeah, that's right. I wonder if it is tangentially related in some way to hypnosis, where you yeah. once again put your mind out, subjected to other people's suggestibility and that kind of stuff. There just seems some several areas where these notions touch one another. So connect with I'm going to tell you something. I I've not even spoken to Jane. I don't think there's a living person. There's it, my my friend Mark and I were kids, um, 11 years old, maybe, maybe 11, 12, about Emmett's age, younger than Emmett now. But we're at Magic Camp where it's, um, you know, it's a military academy where camp is and we're in bunk rooms, you know, bunk beds with, you know, not just one bunk bed, but Six bunk beds and one single bed for the the counselor to sleep in. Yeah. And the counselor hypnotized us at night. (laughs) And 
I, I, I was hypnot. I was, I was out. I was hypnotized to not being able to move my legs. Whenever he clapped his hand, my head, my legs would get unbelievably weighty like lead. And you know, there's nothing like a 12 year old boy's brain to think that's the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> so I gave in to that. Of course, the, the hypnotic, whatever would be taken away when he said, happy birthday. I don't know what to make of that scene. I've carried that in my brain. Yeah, it yeah. was so kind of creepy. <laughs> Maybe he just wanted the room to be quiet so he could get to sleep. <laughs> yeah, that's probably it. But the fact is, I totally believed it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's... That's the part of... Um, you and I talk a lot about placebos. You know, that's Latin for I will please. Yeah. That's what we do. Well, the, the, the whole... Glossolalia movement, you know, where... Oh, wait, wait. Glossolalia is speaking in tongues. Don't think I don't know that word. Yeah, the uh, whole static experience of giving in to this, uh, what would one call it? Spirit? Spirit. uh, Oh, oh, to... Yeah, I mean, you got to relax your body plenty to allow some other spirit to get in. That's right. You're gone and you may be speaking in tongues and whatever ecstasy yeah. form of expression you choose to, and you don't know what caused you to do it. Yeah. So now again, if, if that is the kind of experience that would take away your pain, anxiety, and worry, wouldn't you be a fool not to try it? Well, there was a book written and uh, it touches on just that point. All I remember, I don't remember the author, but the title of it was the neurotic pew. I expect you could Google it. The neurotic pew. And the thesis of the book was, gee, this is 40 years ago, is that the church and the temple provide a great social and psychological function of taking people who would be marginalized in the real world and accepting their neuroses within the church and channeling them along lines that really seem, seem pious. Wait, wait, so go back a second. It's to, to accept the neuroses about what? It was the marginalized, so we take marginalized people. Who are neurotic. Marginalized, yeah. we take marginalized neurotics. Okay, well, I can I, I get a whole casting call of people for that. Mar- we take marginalized neurotics and we accept them. Who are stigmatized in the real world. But in the in the temple or in the church, they're given a place where they can find expression, and it's legitimate. In fact, it might even be pious. What you, pious usually has a bad smell to me. You talking bad smell? No, good smell. There that there seem to be holy, holy people. There's in- they're overcome with the spirit. I know that uh, this memory is in my mind of us going back to Nita Lafontaine's country church, Baptist church. I was preaching that Sunday and Virginia was singing. And when Virginia was singing, his eye is on the sparrow. Mm. And I know he watches me, you know, and people were standing. They were waving their hands in the air. Their head was thrown back. They were seeing things that I didn't see. And finally, one of them just fainted. What? Dead away. Fainted. Uh, What was the word they used? Hey, Jen, what did they call that when people in church faint when someone sings? Swoon. 
They swooned. They didn't say fainted. They swooned. Okay. And the Holy Spirit had taken them, and they just, just like a leaf falling to the ground. They fell to the ground. And the deaconesses, who all wore white gloves, went over and put a sheet over them. What? Put a sheet over them while they're on the ground, the floor, and left them there for the rest of the service. Oh, that is beautiful. And I was Because you, that means they're prepared for you. They got a blanket ready to give you. That's right. It was... It, Save it, your it, dignity. It was routinized within their service. Oh, my God. And I, at the end of the service, yeah, did you hear all the amens I got, Virginia? I said to her afterwards, she says, but you didn't make anyone swoon. No. <laughs> she told that story so many times. But yeah, the, so the, the neurotic pew is about how people who might otherwise be stigmatized because of some neurotic tendency they have, gibberish or whatever, you know, whatever the form be, the church and the temple sacred places institutionalize and routinize that behavior so it's not stigmatic can i put it in in layman's words it gives you a gang affiliation it sure does you're part of the group a respected part of the group one might add yeah <laughs> it, everyone's going to look out for you you can go to another town people in the same club are going to look out for you that's right there's a network a community you belong. Yeah, it's belonging. And, and I think that... Um, right, because why have... else would you join a church or a synagogue except you want to have a feeling of belonging? <laughs> yeah. Because if you, don't have, if you don't have the need for belonging, you're not going to join. <laughs> well, take a look at the... I don't know if you've ever attended any Pentecostal churches. Uh, once. Or black, or black church. Oh, once in Lynchburg, Virginia. And did people raise their hands while they were singing? Ask me if I made an altar call. Did you step forward at the end? I sure did. Yeah, it's an emotional moment. I remember when I did, you know, you give your life to Jesus, you give yeah. your life to God, and you cry, and people... And people you. are excited for you? Uh, thrilled. Thrilling and, moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a shared holy moment. So all that stuff that goes on in certain groups, like the Pentecostals, and black churches that give the feelings part of our nature an opportunity for expression. There aren't many places in our society where that freedom and permission is allowed. Maybe a rock concert. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Where, you know, in a rock concert, oftentimes no one's sitting, they're all standing, and they're waving their arms back and forth in the sky, you know. And they're, they're in another place. But when they go to IBM the next day as a clerk, they're not doing it there. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so they're... Um, bars. There's also... It's also contextual. You can have freedom and permission. As yeah. I know in Japanese culture, as long as you are holding a drink, it can, ins it can insinuate that I'm drunk. And so I forgive see. me, I'm speaking in a different that way. That makes sense to me, yeah. You know, in some religions, like uh, the Native Americans would use peyote. Yeah. Stimulants like that. So. Sense of transcendence. I need to backtrack a second. We've been ballyhooing about freedom and permission as though that's a good thing. That's just, we're assuming it's a good thing. But I think it, I mean, that's the goal of religion, isn't it? Liberation, freedom, permission. Yeah. 
So wait, okay, I'm going to tie this together. So you know what that means? That the people who, wait, how does that work? So religion is goal is to free people, right? But people who want to be involved in religion are the neurotics who want to be part of a group. I'm, I'm dancing around it there. I'm close. Yeah, you can see that. You can see neurosis, for instance, from the standpoint of the person themselves. This is a safe place for me. I can be neurotic and they won't condemn me. I have the freedom and permission to be myself. Family, you have more of a freedom and permission to be yourself with family sure. than you do elsewhere. When And then from the standpoint of the institution itself. Well, no, no, this goes back to what you've said before. It's about uh, freedom versus belonging, right? You have to give up personal freedoms in order to belong to a group. That's the basic sociological principle, isn't it? Let's tie it in with sleep for a second. Okay, good luck. Because what sleep typically does for us is, beside its recreative function, it helps us to recreate our, our body through rest at night. It also serves mm-hmm. I got as you. an escape for us to slip into nothingness. Right. It gives us, because when you are asleep, you have full freedom and permission to just be. You don't right. have to be, you don't have to be thinking. You can just that, be. That's the word. We give in to consciousness. And see, that's what's. Oh, wait, 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 wait. You just almost said something. We give in to consciousness. We lose our sense of self-consciousness is probably a better way to say it, which distinguishes us from much of the animal kingdom. We, we, Being self-aware at some level is enjoyed by animals, but more highly. Okay, them. wait a second. I would tell you that the most, the people who are the most self-aware that I know are the marginalized neurotic who are stigmatized. <laughs> well, they're certainly aware of, part of themselves that is disturbing right they've been stigmatized and told this is who you are yeah oh i got uh, this it's all jumbled up in my head buddy no i i hear you but i i think that uh, sleep at one level is the great escape from this burden of self-consciousness yes it's a burden of self-consciousness say more about that and yet once we're in that state it's not an easy place to stay Because as Freud would indicate, it's during this time of sleeping and dreaming that the self-consciousness, the self, breaks forth again and reveals itself. And sometimes they're scary dreams. Sometimes they're creative dreams. Sometimes they're very revealing dreams. Mm -hmm. You you have insight all of a sudden through a dream. It's amazing, isn't it? How many both Old Testament and New Testament events were written around a dream? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both have had a, you know, there, there's just dozens and dozens. And Martin Luther King included. I have a dream. Yeah. Yeah. So wait, go back on that, connect that all the way back to solitary confinement. My conception of meditation, you said it at the very beginning. Now that sounds like a prison term, solitary confinement, because there is a place where they put people that are misbehaving. Oh, no, they don't just put people who are misbehaving. They also put people they're pissed off at. Yeah, okay. They put them so they can't deal with anyone. And it can be quite destructive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, you know, we hear stories about people go nuts. Yeah. In there. So too much of solitariness 
well, we can explore at, at another time what the negative sides of solitariness is. Certainly one of the big ones is you don't have anyone else to connect yourself with and to, to correct yourself with, you know, that's why dictators get crazier and crazier because they're above the group. They're above the masses. They don't have anyone to measure themselves by. And uh, I think that you can become delusionary Mm. if you're not connected to other people who correct your delusions. Right. um, uh, the, The Unabomber. So it's not surprising that people go nuts in solitary confinement and become more and more delusionary because they have no way to talk it out, no way to correct it. Is this right or is this wrong? Am I imagining this? You know, all of that stuff. And so, yeah, but uh, wait, but being connected to a group can also lead you to do some really crazy things that you would never do by yourself. Absolutely. That's the other side. That the other side, groups do some horrible, horrible Absolutely. things. Absolutely. I, I trust people implicitly. I do not trust groups. Yeah. And yet groups have the capacity to empower yeah. one to accomplish what they couldn't accomplish on their own. Yeah. Do you know that's one of the huge things um, that us as primates is different is that you never will see another primate point to one they don't know and say, could you help me lift that log? Yeah, that's right. But human beings just that's how we are wired. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. In fact, other sentient beings like lions and uh, the like, uh, chimpanzees even, will typically associate with their own, but not with others. Yeah. Oh, would you watch a show called My My Octopus Teacher? <laughs> it's a documentary about a marine biologist who, over the course of a year, had a full daily relation like they became friends as best as an alien and a human being could be. that would be interesting it's beautiful it's just what's it called called my octopus teacher oh my goodness you you will <laughs> you will it's good wholesome fun so apparently he or she learned that octopuses apparently have feelings oh my it was he said like he kept looking in the in the research but most people, nobody has uh, had this relationship that he had. You know, they can't yeah. study an octopus in the lab because the octopus knows it's in a lab. The octopus, <laughs> I've read a thing, an octopus would squirt water at one research assistant always. Nobody knew why this one had pissed the octopus off or if the octopus was trying to flirt. Nobody knew why, but it would, it would just squirt at one. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> it makes me wonder what octopus dream about. It certainly makes the lines between us and them more fuzzy, doesn't it? Oh yeah. When you start seeing traits that they have that we have, vice versa. Oh, but also speaking of like the the vacuum cleaner has gotten better and better. The, the way octopus evolved. You know how we have copper in our blood. We have iron. We use iron in our blood to move oxygen around. They use copper. Mm. Their brain is in their arms. I mean, crazy things. My goodness sakes. Yeah, but you and I like getting our brains stretched. Yeah, and and uh, do, do you find that occurs to you most in solitary moments or in dyadic 
moments. Oh, I'm much most, more. I'm much more dyadic or with a group. Yeah, uh, with a group. I will and, have. And, and as the group increases <clears throat> in size, are you more fully stimulated, or do you check out? No, it's just a different game. It goes from singles to doubles. It goes from one on one to five on one. I'm fine with a. I don't care what size the group is. Mm-hmm. Don't care. It, yeah. I can still do my little my thing, and mm-hmm. it and it fills me up. Oh, so Larry Keene, I I have spoken about the thing you did where you let your congregation minister to you. Oh yeah. Last I night, I I wrote an article came out yesterday. And um, there was some unfortunate piece of it. And my heart was broken. And I said to my group uh, about it. And they they said the most beautiful. They said, Rabbi, you're the one who teaches us about unconditional love. (laughs) You have to love yourself and you have to love those people who were mean. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, that's it. It was it was beautiful. I was near. I was just choked up. I didn't I didn't cry. But. It, I don't need to have cried for it to have been m- meaningful. Yeah, I mean, they were giving you some of your own medicine. It was, yeah, literally, but in, in the way, it's funny, I always hear that phrase, give him some of his own medicine, like it's, uh, you give him something bad. Yeah, like that's Isn't bad. it always that way, is it? You know, we use it in such a pejorative or negative way. Right? What That was the first thought that came to me, is that you had been teaching a loving unconditional message and they were just giving you back what you had been giving them all along and and they did it so unconsciously oh, do you know what i'm going to they do got it. they got it you know and they wanted you to be cared for yeah and they were right there to do it and, and it is a it's a i want to say life shattering and that's a good thing sometimes our negativity becomes so imprisoning that we have to have the chains broken you know and they have to be shattered. And love can have that effect. It can yeah. shatter the negative things that surround you and frees you to be embraced by their holy acceptance. Yeah. You know what I'm going to do on Saturday? We're going to I'm going to do a little thing in my service. I don't know all the details, but here's what I got so far. We're going to talk about that phrase, give them some of their own medicine. And I'm going to say, what if people wanted to give you back some of your own medicine? What would be? What would you what get? Would, who are the people who you would want to gift back with their own medicine? And would you tell them that? That's right. That's a great lesson. I think maybe have them write it down or write an email. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, some people are really good medicine. Some people and- are really good medicine. Can I quote you on that? Well, that just seems to me to be true. And some people are toxic. (laughs) (laughs) We had to fire a babysitter that uh, became family member number one. She became possessive and controlling, and she scared our children and some of the statements she made. And we agonized over that. She was our friend. Finally, I said to her one day, I said to her, you need to go away. You need to go away. And when you get well, when you stop being so negative, and hurtful and controlling, then come back. But right now, you're toxic to mm. our family. And I just put it out there, and uh, we never saw her again. Yeah, it was. Um, and there's some. And you just didn't want to be around her. But then, on the other hand, there are other people. You're one of them. To me, you want them to be around because they're healing, they're supportive, 
they're loving, yeah. you're safe, you're, you're safe. I, I saw a, a cartoon and it was of a guy on a cell phone walking down the street and the caption underneath says, no, mom, I can't talk right now. I'm having a good day. <laughs> oh, well, that's just... Isn't that funny? The, the mountains. <laughs> no offense to my mother. Yeah. <laughs> well, even that has changed for you, I think, over the years. I remember years ago when you talked more about her than your dad. You you formed a, a, a love bond with your father that was pretty special. Toward yeah, the end. We, we cleaned up our whole relationship. It was really it was a, a joy to me to see that happen. It was a little more arduous for your mom. Yeah. But, but even in the last few years, uh, you've been able to walk past a lot of that. And it, it, yeah. it has been much calmer, much easier, much yeah. sweeter. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Mom is how old now? She's young. She's 82. She'll be 82 in March. Okay. Did her mother live a long time? 96, 97. So you're going to have her for another 20 years. Um, Pretty close. God, God willing. I have, I don't, yeah. who knows? Yeah. Larry Keene, I love you. I love you too. This has been fun. I'm good. I, I, that's a great topic to explore for, for Saturday. That's, that'll be a good topic. Oh, and if, if you ever want to show up to a meditation or a Saturday, you're always in. Thank you. Thank you. God. I'm going to do that. All right. Thank you very much. That was this week's episode of Chats with Larry. Please, before you listen to another episode or do something else, think about two friends who might enjoy listening to this and send them a text or email right now. Tell them to listen to Chats with Larry. Thanks to Steve Koch, my producer. There will be another episode next week. And thanks to all of you who donate and support to Religion Outside the Box. Religion Outside the Box can be found at ROTB.org. On the website, you can sign up for the 77% weekly, my spiritual religious faith message delivered to your inbox 40 out of 52 weeks a year. You can shop at the Etsy store for great religious spiritual faith creations. Learn more about the Saturday service and stop on by some Saturday, 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streamed dog free religious service open to everyone. And a special thanks to Virginia Keene and as always to my BFF, Larry Keene. I love you, buddy.